This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is in memory of Kenneth Claudefelter, Richard Costello, Lakina Francis, Timothy Guan, Sharon Gunn, James McDaniels, Mark Nieto, Ronald Owens, Lakiba Palmer, Langdon Parlett, Patrick Roy, Kevin Rue, Manigan Santiago, Timothy Saunders, Gary Swinchonis, Andrew Triplett, and Craig Wiberly. This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by Mudgear. Mudgear serves the unleashed. They've created a brand of tough, strong, functional performance gear. This stuff is built to endure and push you along the way because like you, Mudgear's made tougher. From their custom-created Mudgear race jersey to their trail socks, it's all built for the outdoor athlete. I'm wearing a Mudgear t-shirt right now. I have their tack hat which I absolutely love. I had it on during a ruck this morning. Their race shirts, those bad boys, they're all built in the USA. It's just good stuff. Get sweaty, get dirty. It's all good. Whether it's for a road race or an obstacle adventure, Mudgear can help you gear up for the extreme performance. We have an exclusive for all Pick Up the Six listeners. Go to mudgear.com slash P-U-T-6, the number six. That's mudgear.com slash P-U-T and the number six and you're going to save 15% off your order, just like that. But it's only for Pick Up the Six listeners. Go to mudgear.com slash P-U-T-6, the number six, and let's get after it. Mudgear, it's made tougher. Kirk Lippold was the commander of the USS Cole on October 12, 2000. This is roughly one year before the World Trade Center was destroyed in New York City, before the Pentagon was attacked, before the plane went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and before more than 3,000 people were killed at the hands of terrorists, all on American soil. On October 12, 2000, the USS Cole, while refueling in the port of Aden, Yemen, was attacked. Some might say a precursor to 9-11. Men and women in the uniform of the United States Navy lost their lives. The moments immediately following the attack and the subsequent days exemplify picking up the six through service before self. Commander Lipple joined the podcast to talk about how his sailors truly live for others in a moment of extreme crisis. Brian Jodas here for Pick Up the Six podcast and Commander Kirk Lippold. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Great to be on your show. Appreciate the invitation. It is always a pleasure, my friend, when our paths can cross. I have the honor of having known you for, gosh, I think it's over 10 years at this point and time flies, uh, but it is so great to have you here as we're launching out this new effort here on Pick Up the Six to highlight these amazing stories about service and purpose and impact. I had a short list of names uh, as I was building out content for the show, and at the very top was your name, quite frankly. And I'm not just telling you that because you're here, and that's why you, my friend, are episode number one, because we have a, a powerful story to share. So no pressure for you. I know you're used to to talking and, and, uh, and sharing your story, but episode number one here, you have the distinct honor of that. Well, Brian, that, that is a tremendous honor. Uh, to this day, even a little over 20 years since the attack on USS Cole, I am still very proud of my heroes and everything they did to save their ship and shipmate. So before 9-11, there was 10-12, and we're going to talk about that fateful day in a few minutes. But first, help me with this. How does a kid from Nevada end up at the Naval Academy and then commanding the USS Cole later down the road? Give our listeners just a, a bit of a sense as to how all that plays out. Sure. 
I uh, grew up in Carson City, Nevada. And uh, as I was uh, getting ready to enter my senior year in high school, I had to, like most of us, take a look and figure out, okay, where do I want to go to school? What do I want to do? And Brian, I just had this inner sense that I wanted to serve. And I tried to figure out what's the best way to do that. And I looked, quite honestly, at all of the academies. I looked at West Point in the Army. I looked at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs and the Naval Academy in Annapolis. I applied to all three. And at the end of the day, I was fortunate enough to be given an appointment to the Naval Academy and to West Point. And I guess the uh, the Navy guy got to me first and he said, hey, look, <laughs> if you want to go do the Army thing, we got this thing called the Marine Corps. But you just have to remember, if you join the Army, no matter where you go in the world, your home is where you dig it. So I sat back and said, OK, sounds good for the Navy and uh, ended up going there for four years. Um, it was quite a learning experience, both academically and really taught me to grow up. And at the end, I chose surface warfare which is Navy ships, and uh, started out the Navy in a tank landing ship, followed that by going into the world of the Aegis weapon system, serving on Aegis guided missile cruisers and guided missile destroyers, actually building the very first Arleigh Burke class destroyer, which is the same type as USS Cole. And eventually all that hard work and perseverance paid off when I was given the ultimate honor by my Navy and the nation to uh, take command of USS Cole and stand back on the flight deck in front of friends and family and say really the three greatest words of a Naval officer's career. I relieve you. And it was with those three simple words that I assumed total accountability for that one plus billion dollar national asset and the lives of almost 300 of our nation's finest sailors. You know, as a kid growing up, uh, have the distinct honor and privilege of having a dad who served in the Air Force for 36 years. My grandfather, uh, his father was in the Navy, was on the USS Terry during World War II, also deployed out during the Korean War. And so I've always had a soft spot in my heart uh, for the Navy and, and always love hearing you speak about uh, those those experiences and all those ships. I remember as a kid, he spoke to our eighth grade class and someone said, what kind of boat were you on? He said, whoa, 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 whoa. I was on a ship. A ship holds a boat. <laughs> and that always stuck out to me when you think about what you guys uh, are able to uh, to command and and to be on the, the incredible power that's in those. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing responsibility that they entrust to these young men and women mm -hmm. to serve. I mean, let's face it. From the, from the most junior seaman recruit aboard the ship all the way up through the captain, every single one of them at some point in their life raise their right hand and choose a life of consequence in service to their nation. They say, I am willing to, for the next four to 40 years, choose to serve, to give up certain privileges, to give up a life that may be of convenience and of mm -hmm. ease and instead work to make sure that we stay the most free and the most prosperous nation in the world so that we can give back to others. So we, we can continue to build and live by the constitution that our founding fathers were kind enough to put together and build for us. And it, it truly is a life of service. You mm -hmm. become part of something larger than yourself. And so when you talk about your service before self, any one of these young men and women who choose to serve starts on that path. Boy, and, and if your creator and your country asks you to make that ultimate price, the day you 
take that oath. You're saying I'm okay with that. If that ultimately becomes part of my journey and my story. And, and that's part of the story for those sailors and your shipmates that were part of the coal. So before we talk about what happened on that day, can you set the stage for us a little bit, the timeline as to kind of where we're at in the world? We view the war on terror, many do, as sort of 9-11, which we all can know and remember and on. But again, we're a year backed out from that. So so maybe set the stage for me. Where we Where are we in the world the morning of this attack? Well, I'll rewind just a little bit further because it goes back to we had the standoff between the United States and back then the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and eventually the Soviet Union collapsed. It broke up into all the separate countries that we see and know today. And everyone kind of looked at this, oh, we're going to have this great peace dividend. And we had been involved in a proxy war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And what would develop over years is that that Afghanistan, which had been taken over by the Taliban, which was really a, an outgrowth of the Pakistani intelligence service, wanting to have a counterbalance to be able to have protected borders. So they would use the Taliban against uh as a proxy against India, they would also infiltrate them into Afghanistan. And the Taliban would give safe haven to this new terrorist organization called Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. And it, obviously, it was run by Osama bin Laden, as many people know. And it began to really metastasize and grow into an international terrorist organization that had incredible reach. First indication we got was probably 1993 with the first attack on the World Trade Center. Then you followed it up several years later with an attack against the two embassies in East Africa, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, Nairobi, Kenya in 1998, devastating explosions that killed and wounded, killed hundreds and wounded thousands. Mm -hmm. And then when USS Cole was getting ready to deploy, We knew that terrorism was out there. We knew that there was this threat when we would go into the Middle East. We actually deployed out of our home port of Norfolk, Virginia. And when we sailed out, the the specter of terrorism really did not loom large in any of our eyes. Our mission was actually to go to the North Arabian Gulf to enforce United Nations sanctions against the country of Iraq. And while there had been terrorist attacks, no one had envisioned what would lay in wait for us the morning of October 12th. So you pull into the port of Aden in Yemen. You're essentially there to do what's a relatively routine refueling um, uh, practice, right? To, to go through that, to be able to do that. And, and, and then life changes in an instant. Life changes. Take me into it. We had been operating for about uh, six weeks in the Mediterranean through the Suez, came through the Suez Canal on the 9th of October. Our mission, as I mentioned, was to go to the North Arabian Gulf. If you look at where the country of Yemen sits, it's at the far southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. Aden is at the far southwest corner of Yemen itself, but it's at about the halfway point between the Mediterranean and the Middle East. We had gone from a Navy of 4,000 ships in World War II to 600 ships at the height of the Reagan buildup against the Soviets in the mid-80s. To that morning, we were down to 315 ships, and there was not an oiler to do an underwear punishment within 1,000 miles. Mm -hmm. So we would pull into the port that morning with uh, two small tugs following us to get us next to the pier. 
we would turn the ship around. We would moor it starboard side or right side to appear in the middle of the harbor, shutting down the four engines, left two of our three gas turbine generators to provide power, ran through the import refueling checklist. We had been refueling the ship for about 45 minutes, and I'm sitting at my desk doing routine paperwork that work that morning when at 11.18, there was a thunderous explosion. You could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer suddenly and violently thrust up and to the right, headed toward the pier. And as we were lifted up an estimated six to eight feet from the shock wave reflecting off the seabed and hitting the underside of the ship, as we slid back down into the water, power failed, lights went out, ceiling tiles popped out. I literally came in the brace position on the balls of my feet as everything on my desk popped up and slammed back down. And when the ship stopped moving to a point that I could let go, I went to the door of my cabin. I looked down the hallway or what we call a passageway. There's two, two emergency lights, one in the door of my cabin, one halfway down the passageway. And as I looked at the far end, I see this gray cloud rolling toward me and then it washes over me. There's complete silence. I could smell the dust. I could smell the fuel, but there was this acrid metallic tang that settled in the back of my mouth, and I didn't know what it was. Young officer stepped out of the cabin, looks at me wide-eyed and using good sailor-like language, asked me, what the F was that? Then without saying one more word, he takes off into that gray cloud, headed toward the danger, which is what we train our young men and women to do today. I took one step out of my cabin to follow him and realized that wasn't a fuel explosion like everyone thought. If it had been being next to the pier, we'd have been blown to the left. But being thrust up into the right, I knew it had been a fuel explosion. I went back into my cabin bedroom area. That's where I kept the keys to all the weapon systems on the ship. The missiles, the torpedoes, the five-inch gun, the 20-millimeter close-in weapon system reached in. I don't pull out a handful of keys. I pulled out a nine millimeter, loaded it, chambered around, decocked it, two clips of ammunition, ran down to the middle of the ship, went and talked and met with my chief gunner's mate. He was reestablishing the defensive perimeter around the side of the ship. And I leaned over and for the first time that confirmed it had been an external explosion because all the metal was shoved inward into the ship. So taking a moment here, because that's an incredible uh, a recount of what happens in that moment. You grab that nine millimeter, you walk out of your, your office, your bunk. You don't know what, you don't know what you're facing, right? Like at first you think, all right, fuel explosion. Then you think, no, it can't be because it doesn't come from this certain part of the ship. You, you don't know what's going on, but by grabbing a nine millimeter, you know, something's up. What are you expecting to see? Who, who are you expecting to meet you down that hallway with that, with that gun drawn? I absolutely didn't know. When I got to the middle of the ship, Brian, and looked toward the back end in the flight deck area, the three-person watch team that had been standing watch there, they're gone. A wooden podium that was there that we had our deck log on to log events going on on the ship, that podium had been blown into pieces. Wires that formed our high-frequency radio antenna snapped off and draped down. Dirty black waters dripping off of everything. I don't know if we're going to be boarded. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's going to be a follow-on attack. All I know is that I need to get to that port side and find out what's going on. And in that singular, singular moment, this could be my destiny. 
And while everyone that raises their right hand knows that it's a possibility that you may die in the service of your country, it's when you have that moment where you consciously make the decision that my purpose right then and there may be to defend my ship with my life. As I headed out toward the port side, all I could think to myself was, if you see someone that doesn't belong, make them duck first and don't leave an empty round in the chamber. And that is an incredibly defining moment in my life because I realized, in fact, yes, I am prepared, I am ready, and I may die, but at least I will do it with a larger purpose in mind, which is defending my ship, which is defending my nation. You talked about that first hero that ran into that dark smoke. You went back to grab that weapon. We talk a little bit more about those other heroes that stepped up in that, uh, in that trying time when faced with incredible adversity before we do that. So tell me exactly what did happen. So, you know, it's not a refueling accident. You know, it's not from uh, the side uh, at the dock. So tell us what did happen. And then we're going to come back to all those brave men and women that stepped up because our listeners are probably like, and if they haven't heard or, or they don't know um, what actually did happen on that day. Prior to beginning the refueling operations, we had actually contracted with the logistics agent from Yemen in the port who had coordinated with the embassy to get our fueling, get a sewage barge out there because we expected to be there six to eight hours, had coordinated for us to take fresh water from the pier so we didn't make it out of the dirty harbor water. But in coordination with that, he had also arranged for three garbage barges to come out to the ship to take off all the trash, all the plastic that we can't dump at sea, all the hazardous material that we'd never want to dump at sea. And two boats had come out, one to the middle of the ship and one back to the end of the ship by the flight deck where the crew had loaded them up and they had left. What had happened with previous ships to come in, because we were the 27th ship to pull into Aden for these routine refueling operations, is that two boats would dump their trash and one would come back out and kind of play cleanup. What we didn't know at the time is that Al-Qaeda had been observing from a safe house, Navy ships come into the port. They observed when they came in, what pier they went to, what side they moored to, what boats came out and left, kind of the routine flow of operations. So what happened is when the two boats left and were halfway across the harbor, a third boat approached us. Unlike what you may have read in the press accounts, it was not a Zodiac boat that raced across the harbor and rammed the ship and exploded. Instead, it was a boat that looked just like the other garbage barges. 24-foot wooden fiberglass, center console, outboard motor, two guys in it. It slowed by the bow, turned, came down the side of the ship. A young sailor whose responsibility it was to actually watch and observe the refueling to make sure we didn't spill any fuel out of one particular port that was going to be, that's where it would start dribbling out if we overfilled the tanks. He saw the boat go by and he thought to himself, something just doesn't seem right. But the next thing he knew is the boat was at the middle of the ship and then he was flat on his back with a face full of shrapnel. Didn't even have time to... He, he would survive, but when the FBI interviewed him, what had happened is the boat went by. The only thing that was unusual in his mind's eye, as it went by, he thought to himself, boy, that sure is awful clean for a garbage barge. 
And that was really the only indicator we had at that moment what had happened. So they took advantage of those operations. It blew the hole in the side of the ship. And what had also happened, Brian, is the announcing system for the ship, or what we call the 1MC, had failed. So there was no way to tell the crew what had happened, where to go, or what to do. And they fell back on their training, and they broke into one of three groups. Damage control to stop the ship from sinking, security to stop another attack, and triage to save their shipmates. And that's really how they divided out and began to do everything. That guy that ran past me, headed into that smoke-filled crowd, would actually go down, determined because of he couldn't do anything with respect to the damage. So he was actually engaged in life-saving efforts in the galley area. As a matter of fact, took, took one young sailor with comp, severe compound fractures to both of her femurs. He actually was able to get her out and save her, and she would eventually live thanks to his efforts. You wrote, a, you wrote a book about this. It's called Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on USS Cole. I highly recommend our listeners, if you want to dig more into these stories or hear them, uh, not just in Kirk's voice as he joins us today, but as he writes them out, it's an incredibly powerful read. Again, name of the book is called Front Burner. You can definitely go check it out. T- two things that you mentioned there that have to happen, and, and, and I remember you explaining it and describing as if like a giant had smashed his fist through the side of the ship, which is a rather powerful way of explaining it. But then two things have to happen. Ultimately, you have to stop the, sh- the ship from sinking. That's a real reality as to, as to where the water's coming in. And then you've got dozens of sailors who are injured now in this. So stop the ship from sinking and save your shipmates' lives. Let's talk about stopping the ship from sinking first, and then we'll talk about the heroic efforts to save those. And I know we lost 17 sailors in the attack, and so let's also take a pause to remember those that we lost. But stopping the ship from sinking, at one point, I mean, you were legit bailing water out with buckets. So how'd you guys do it? What would happen is in the immediate aftermath of the blast, and we knew where the attack had come from, uh, we saw the life-saving efforts going on. I actually went to the bridge and contacted the Yemeni port authorities, not knowing where the attack had originated from. We asked them to freeze all harbor movements, and they agreed to notify local hospitals. They said they had two and sent boats out to us to help get the wounded off because I knew, despite not having seen any wounded, we were going to have wounded beyond ship's force capability to treat. I didn't have a doctor on board. All I had was a chief hospital corpsman who's like a physician's assistant, Mm -hmm. but it was going to be beyond his ability. So they would send boats out to us to begin to take the wounded off. In the meantime, the ship is now listing over five and a half degrees to port and down one degree by the bow. We could literally feel the ship sinking beneath our feet. I went down in the dark to the galley area. I looked at the extensive amount of damage. I eventually would step back because as I was walking toward the back end and toward the galley area where the blast had occurred, I actually got my first piece of good news because the back one third of the ship had lights on. And in that split second, I knew if I had lights on, I had a generator running, which means I could get power to pumps, which means Mm -hmm. I could save the ship. As I stepped out of the back of the darkened Mestex area, which had been supposed to be my triage area, I literally came face to face with the reality of my earlier decision. The crew had come out on the flight deck initially and not knowing the security situation, I shoved them back in, not knowing we had a triage area and all the way down the back end of the ship and around the corner, as far as I could see were the wounded. 
The wounds were typical for a blast like this. Broken bones, shrapnel, cuts, scrapes, bruises, shock. Two to three sailors working on every one of the wounded to try and save them. I would have given anything to bend down and talk to my wounded sailors, but I can't. They are not my number one priority. My number one priority has to be saving the ship because I know if we can't save the ship, nothing is going to matter. I walked into the central control station. It is a hurricane of activity. My engineer is determining the status of the generator. Fortunately, temperatures and pressures are normal and providing power. To my right, the executive officer working with a young ensign who'd only been aboard the ship two and a half weeks as my due damage control assistant. And everybody was doing exactly what we had trained to do, which allowed me in that moment to make the smartest decision of my command tour and keep my mouth shut. The last thing I needed to do as the captain would be to walk in and take charge of the situation without having all the facts in full context of what was going on. So I stood there for about a minute, got briefed on the status of the ship. We had already flooded two of our four main engineering spaces, but even with that amount of damage. And what we didn't know at the time is that cracks actually went to within 18 inches of the keel. And that hole that you described where a giant just kind of punched his fist in the side and pull it out, resulted in a hole that measured 40 by 40 feet in size. So we knew we were right at the ragged edge of we've got to save the ship. But if we could contain the flooding right there to those two spaces, I knew we'd be able to save it. I was confident enough that I turned all the damage control effort over to my executive officer. Then I went up to the middle of the ship. I was overseeing the triage efforts. So at that point in time, the way we would actually do it is we had not put a gangplank or brow down to the pier in the middle of the harbor because we're not there for a poor visit. We're there to get fuel and get the heck out of there. But I'm in the golden hour. To get people off, we would literally holler at the Yemeni fuel workers who would lean a ladder up against the side of the ship at a 45 to 50 degree angle, still eight feet short of the deck edge. And we would take these wounded sailors, strap them tightly into metal litters, tie two lines to the feet and throw it to the workers, tie two lines to the head. And then we would tip them over the side of the ship, down to the ladder, wiggling back and forth onto the pier where they'd untie the lines, run them over and start getting wounded ashore. And it's a testament to how well the crew did that first day. We would evacuate 33 wounded off the ship, getting the gangplank down at a little over the hour point. And of the 33 sailors that we would get off, 32 would survive. Incredible. We did it in 99 minutes and it was absolutely phenomenal. And uh, when you want to talk about impact of people and stepping up, my navigator who had been in the Navy a little over four years at that point, literally stood in front of me at the 30 minute point and said, Captain, we don't know what the full extent of these sailors injuries are is. We don't know which hospital they're going to. We don't know what their treatment regimen is. I recommend we send someone ashore to track them. I said, great idea. Who do you recommend? She said, sir, I'll volunteer to go. Now, she walked off that ship once we got the gangplank down at the little over the hour point, would go into a foreign country, would go into the hospitals, get the status of each of the sailors, get word back to the ship. We would send 20 blood donors ashore along with a handful of petty officers. A press reporter from Enjolencee Francais who had heard the blast contacted the French embassy in the Yemen capital of Sana'a who would call the hospital in Djibouti after contacting Paris. 
They flew a medical evacuation aircraft in. They would take 11 of my most seriously wounded sailors that night, and my navigator left with them. And the next day, the Air Force would medically evacuate everyone out of Djibouti and everyone out of Aden. My navigator could have left with them, and I never would have questioned her motives. Mm -hmm. Two days later, she got on an aircraft, flew back to Aden, made her way from the airport downtown, checked in with the admiral standing up the joint task force responding to the attack, came on a Yemeni boat across the harbor, walked across the refueling pier, up the brow, and reported back aboard for duty. That's the level of dedication I had in my young officers and the crew that day. There's, there's so many incredible takeaways and, uh, and lessons in there for our audience. So first and foremost, one of the things you talked about was not walking into this, essentially what's become hell on earth in these moments, and just start barking out commands. You've got to allow your crew to fall back on that training and their know-how of how to react in a situation like this versus going in and just steamrolling that. And likely that, like you said, it's the, it's the number one thing, the smartest thing you ever did. You kept your mouth shut, which I think is incredibly important. And then her dedication to selflessly walk off this thing. And, and you're right, going to a foreign land, by the way, with a huge target on her back for all we know in this moment, right? Like you don't know what you're walking into. We had, to go had do no, that. We had no idea what the threat situation was. And to her credit, look, was she, was there fear in her eyes? You bet. Did she do it? Absolutely. And you do that because you had confidence in your people and they have confidence in themselves. That's what this repetitive training is about. Because like you said, she walked into a foreign yep. country, gets on an aircraft from another country, flies to a third country, and she didn't stand there asking me the litany of questions. Now, there's a little, there's a little short story that all your listeners can, can look up online. It's called Message to Garcia. They can Google it. But rather than stand there and ask me, where are the hospitals located? How do I get transportation? Do I need a change of clothes? Should I take my passport with me? How am I supposed to communicate with me? Instead, she knew that I had her back and she had the confidence that we were going to do what was necessary. Goes off, does what she needs to to save those lives, leaves the country, comes back and reports back aboard. Absolutely phenomenal job. But when you look at when you look at making decisions in crisis, that, mm -hmm. that, that, Brian, is what I often refer to as you have to you have to gain that ability as leaders to act in the now while think ahead. And you really do that by asking what I call the what next question. What do I need to think about next? What do I need to plan for next? And what do I need to do next? And when you start doing that, what you're actually doing is you're pushing your timeline out to create time and space for that critical thinking. And as a leader, you may have a broad scope of responsibility, but at the end of the day, you have to remember when people come to you and want to ask you to make a decision on something, you have to remember in your world, that may be a little wedge, but when they come to you, your job as a leader to make their, that wedge, their world, now your world, so that you can gain as much good information as possible, ask the questions that are necessary so that you can tell them what the decision is going to be and they go do it. And you have to remember, make decisions. As leaders, you make decisions. And guess what? We're not politicians. Mm -hmm. So as you get better information, guess what you get to do? 
make better decisions. Make better decisions. And that could include making a 180 in the decision you just right. made because it's not the right path to be following. Yep. And we would do that in a continuous, continuous basis. And, and, and it's pushing that timeline out where I went from thinking in terms of seconds to minutes to a golden hour, from a golden hour to three hours. And then I knew, Brian, that at about the, at about the four hour point, the ship was stable. The wounded are ashore. They're in the hospitals taking care of. And I now need to think beyond the ship. I need to think about those families back home. Mm -hmm. And we literally sat down and I said, I want absolute eyes on every sailor to make sure we have a 100% accurate roster. I wanted a, mu or a muster to make sure we knew who, who and where everyone was. And at the end of that, we had accounted for the initial killed in action. We had accounted for the wounded that were ashore in the hospitals, along with the personnel helping them. And we knew that there were 12 sailors trapped in the wreckage of the mess line, the galley area, and down in main engine room number one that bore the brunt of the blast. And the reason we needed to get those initial names is because I knew that that evening back home in the United States, there was going to be that that black sedan pulling up to those houses and giving families the worst possible news that their loved one had either been killed or was missing in action, trapped somewhere in the ship. Mm. And so, you know, as leaders, when you think about it, you know, you, you talk about a community impact. This event would have huge ripple effects, not just on the crew and the families of USS Cole, but it affected the United States Navy. We fundamentally changed how we did operations as a result of it. But the initial one that I needed to think about was, what's the impact going to be on our little family, our little community, and how can I make it as accurate as possible? Because I knew those families, as hard it was, as it was going to be, needed to know the status of their loved ones sooner rather than later. And, and that's how we would eventually work it. 17 families left without loved ones after that day. Um, we, we, we honor you. Uh, we think about those gold star families and I know you felt, uh, some level of, uh, of need and want and desire and, and maybe that you owed it to them to write front burner and, and to, and to, and to write this book, to remember, to remember them, to honor them. D did you feel that in the writing process to, to honor those, those 17 specifically? Uh, I did. And, and Brian, you know, you and I have, have talked about it before, you know, it was amazing in the immediate aftermath of the event and the investigations and everything that went into it. A lot of people were encouraging me to, hey, you need write a book, get on the speaking circuit, you'll make a million bucks. And, and I, I, just, I just looked at them and I, I just smiled because it was very apparent that they had no concept what had really happened. And I think what a lot of people didn't understand is that I had gone through that event just like my crew. Mm -hmm. I had been affected by it just like my crew. And despite the urgings of many people, including close friends that you and I know, it would literally take me nine years 
before I would reach that point in my life where I was willing to sit at a keyboard, having moved back out to Carson City for a period of time, to stare at the Sierra Nevada mountains and recall that story onto paper. Mm. And it took me about a year. And there were days when I would have rather done anything in the world than write. But I knew I owed it to my crew of heroes. I knew I owed it to the families and I owed it to our country to recount that story of heroism and what they did. And after a year, the book was, was ready for publication. I sent it off and, uh, you know, the publishing journey has been absolutely amazing. I don't regret it. I will tell you, maybe someday I'll look back on it as a, as a cathartic experience. Uh Me at the time, it was painful because I was reliving a very traumatic event. And I speak about it now because of the pride that I have in my crew, because I know the importance of telling that story so that our fellow countrymen can understand the sacrifice that they made and the willingness that they had to die for their country if necessary. And that 17 did pay that ultimate price. And as, and as you so succinctly put at the beginning before nine 11, there was 10, 12. And at the end of the day, my crew will always be heroes. And it was incredibly gratifying at the 20th anniversary of the attack in Norfolk, Virginia, alongside the ship this past October 12th, the Navy truly recognized the heroism of the crew in what they did. And I couldn't be more proud of the job they did. One story I want you to share before we go. And and again, I highly recommend you guys read Front Burner. There's a a great, uh, powerful stories about this Bucker Brigade to save the ship. There's a story about the entire crew because based on the way the ship is at the time, sleeping under the stars uh, out there, you know, all together. But you tell the story about when you finally leave. When the USS Cole is, is, is patched up and she's wounded and she's hurt, but we're going to take her home. And it's a long journey to get her home. But that, that as you're leaving out of the port, as you're leaving out and, and you're heading out, uh, this, this moment happens uh, as you're getting sort of tugged out and, again, sort of limping your way on out. Tell our listeners uh, what happens as you're getting, as you're getting taken out because I, I think it, uh, it really sort of sets the stage for how everybody was feeling in, in that moment. Well, we had been in port for 17 days. Uh, the hole in the side was still there. Uh, We'd had naval architects that had looked at the extent of the damage and said, you're going to be fine. The ship's not going to sink. You'll be able to withstand the tow out of the harbor and down the coast of this heavy lift ship called Blue Marlin. And uh, the interesting question I asked is, why did you put that heavy lift ship 23 miles down the coast and set right outside the mouth of the harbor? And they said, well, you know, just in case something happens and the ship does sink, uh, we want to make sure that it's kind of out of out of sight of the press. Wow. We want everyone to see it. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, okay. Okay. Uh, based upon that confidence in the ship's ability to stay together, XO, when we leave, I want the ship back at general quarters. And this time, although we had restored the announcing system by this point, and we had set up a stereo system back on the flight deck, I told the XO initially I wanted complete silence on the ship because I knew the crew would be able to hear if there was a problem developing long before they ever saw it. But as the four Yemeni tugs gently pulled us off the pier into the middle of the harbor, that ship, as a testament to American quality workmanship, held rock solid, not even so much as a creak or a groan. 
And as we started getting towed out, I turned to my XO and I said, XO, play the first song. And the first song that we played as we were leaving Aden Harbor was the Star Spangled Banner. I wanted our national anthem coming off that ship and echoing across the harbor as a signal to the Yemenese people that despite what had happened to us, we were still going to leave with our head held high. And as we were leaving, there's a small pier with two Yemeni Navy patrol boats. And as we're getting towed up and approached that pier, the crew members from those two Yemeni boats had got into their dress uniforms, came down on the pier, and as we were towed by, they came to attention and rendered us honors. Once clear, I turned back to the XO and said, XO, play the second song. Second song that we played, Star Spangled Banner again. You bet. <laughs> second time, though, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix version? Beautiful. You betcha. And then I'm feeling pretty good. As the captain, hey, XO, crews earned it. Let them play what they want. I want a good cultural signal of American rock and roll across the sh coming off the ship. In that defining moment, Brian, I learned my most valuable lesson as captain on just how much leash you give a sailor in a moment like this, because the next thing I hear coming out of those speakers is not what I would define as a cultural signal <laughs> or music. They have turned the volume on the stereo all the way up. Mm -hmm. They have turned the volume on the speakers all the way up. And all I hear is vibrating noise. I turned to the XO for the first time in two and a half weeks, lost my cool, looked at him and asked him in good sailor-like language, XO, what the, is that, get that shut off right now. He gets wide-eyed, tears out of the bridge, runs back to the flight deck, but doesn't call me up till halfway through the song. I call him and ask him, XO, what, what took you so long? He said, well, Captain, as I was going down the ladders or stairs on the port side that had been damaged by the blast, I wanted to be careful because, you know, sir, safety is our number one priority. <laughs> Seemed like he was buying him some time. Oh, yeah. So he asked me, do you want me to shut the song off? I said, no, just better volume and a better song would be appreciated. But at the end of the day, who had the crew pricked? <laughs> it was a great American, Kid Rock. And what was the song? American Badass. So, you know, that, that ought to tell you. But uh, we would get the ship up onto Blue Marlin, and she would come back to the United States and be repaired, and she is back out there defending freedom today. But, uh, you know, I, I couldn't be prouder of the job they did. Last thing, May 2nd, 2011, U.S. troops go into Pakistan. They take out Osama bin Laden. For Americans across our nation, we cheered. We celebrated in the streets. For you, what was that night like? Uh, Brian, at that time, I was still out in Nevada and just doing some, uh, some cleanup work on a few chapters in the book. And all of a sudden, they come on TV and they say, the president is going to address the nation. And I'm looking at my watch, and it's about 7.30 at night, and I'm thinking, the only reason President Obama would be coming out to address the nation, literally what I thought is someone's popped a nuke off somewhere. Mm. In other words, there's been a detonation or we a got problem. Coming. Nobody, a president does not address the nation this late at night, unless there's something, a big problem. And he came on and he announced that we had killed bin Laden in a raid into Abbottabad, Pakistan. And while a lot of people came out and they, celebrated I, I i just all i did brian was get up 
and I walked outside and it was a cool, crystal clear evening. And I looked up at the mountains and I just smiled. And I said, my crew has been vindicated. Mm. It is, it has taken a long time for us to get to this point, but what I hope this signal sends is that if you mean to do the United States of America, our citizens, or our national security interests harm anywhere in the world, we will hunt you down. And when we find you, we're going to do one of two things. We're either going to capture you or we're going to kill you. And in Osama bin Laden's case, we killed him. I don't think there was a choice. And I still believe it was the best decision to make. He's Commander Kirk Lippold, had command of the USS Cole the day it was attacked in Yemen in 2000. So grateful for your, uh, for your time today, for, for coming on this show and, and helping us kick this thing off and really exemplifying that service before self, that strength of purpose. And you're right, that community impact as well. Thank you, Kirk. Absolutely, Brian. Thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for your listeners. I really appreciate it because each and every one of you out there are the ones that truly make it possible for all those young men and women to volunteer to serve and to go out there and defend our freedom. Please support them and keep up the great work and God bless our great nation. You can read more about that story in Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's attack on the USS Cole. He's Commander Kirk Lippold. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast and we gotta go. Hey, 